Welcome to this bonus interview with Dr. Mark P. Berry. Dr. Berry is an independent Asian analyst who has followed U.S.-Korean relations for many years. He has visited North Korea. Dr. Berry helped to found and direct the Asian Pacific Peace Institute in Washington, D.C. Here, Dr. Berry talks about developments on the Korean Peninsula from the mid-1940s up to the current nuclear standoff with North Korea as we approach Trump-Kim Summit 2. We begin with the immediate aftermath of World War II. So much was happening. There was so much tumult going on, so much uncertainty about uh, whether the Soviets would enter the war, and if so, on what date. Uh, and, um, and General MacArthur's prerogative to, to focus on the surrender of Japan, and uh, everything had to be focused on uh, achieving that, that surrender. And one could say that um, there was, it was nothing deliberate uh, other than a, 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 the problem, I think, of always underestimating uh, the, the importance of Korea, the significance of Korea, um, amidst the the um, uh, the raging events that that happen from time to time in that region. Uh, so uh, yes, I think that um, there was relatively poor planning for uh, Korea uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, immediately after the surrender of Japan. Certainly. Uh, uh, People like George McCune, who handled the uh, the one-man Korea desk at the State Department, uh, felt that way. Uh, and he was the son of uh, Presbyterian missionaries in Korea, northern Korea. Uh, at the same time, um, General MacArthur had his reason to put the fo focus on uh, the surrender of Japan and a certain understandable reluctance that... Um, uh, to the extent that we could stay away from mainland Asia, the better off we would be. What, what was his uh, reasoning on that? I, it's, I think it, it, it went all the way up through uh, uh, the start of the Korean War, where MacArthur uh, and many, many others just felt that uh, U.S. would just get uh, uh, irredeemably bogged down in a land war in Asia. And to the extent that the U.S. could avoid that, uh, that would be a, a much better option. Uh, of course, in many ways, the Korean War was a land war <laughs> in Asia, but I think it's something that MacArthur uh, was trying to avoid. Um, uh, and of course, a whole other tangential discussion was uh, the w wisdom of whether or not the Soviets should enter the war in the Pacific. Um, and some excellent books have been written on that subject. Uh, but I think one of the unanswered questions uh, of which only one author that I'm aware of has really sought to answer, and uh, it's hard to verify his information, but uh, uh, a book called America's Parallel by Mike Michael Sandusky, written in uh, 83. Uh, Sandusky worked in the office of the Secretary of the Army, I believe, and he had access to a lot of um, good documentation. And at least according to him, and not everyone would agree with him, um, the Russians uh, didn't send all that many troops into northern Korea. Uh, and uh, those that did uh, come down from Vladivostok and entered northeastern Korea were met, believe it or not, with heavy resistance by the local uh, Japanese military uh, up there. And when the Soviets did send uh, troops to Pyongyang, they could only do so by airlifting them. 
so that suggests that uh, this was not the huge onslaught of Soviet troops into northern Korea that might have been expected, uh, and certainly compared to the the major onslaught uh, crossing uh, into China uh, and into Manchuria in particular. Uh, so it, it argues the question that maybe it would have been possible for the U.S. had there been the uh, political will and the um, the amphibious uh, uh, and vessel support to make it happen that American troops could have pushed further uh, uh, in a reasonable amount of time uh, such that perhaps um, a dividing line could have been created at the 40th parallel. Okay, um, but uh, at what, what period in time are we discussing now? I'm, I'm talking about uh, August of uh, 45. Okay, uh, right. Now, and further putting that into context, of course, the United States actually virtually begged the Soviets to enter the war uh, because they couldn't they couldn't uh, get closure against the Japanese if they didn't have if the Japanese couldn't be sure that the uh, the Russians were not going to actually come in and act as a neutral mediator. And the mere fact right. that, that Russia made any commitment at all, because Stalin did it because he had designs on Korea. And another piece of naivety by the U.S. administration, you might say. But Mm -hmm. it didn't take that. It wouldn't have taken that many uh, Russian troops or Soviet troops to uh, convince the Japanese that on uh, on top of everything else, including the atomic bomb, uh, only Mm -hmm. days before the Soviets Mm -hmm. crossed into North Korea, that uh, the game was up because they would not have been. They realized they could not rely on the Soviets to help mediate an end to the war that they were not going to be part of any kind right. of neutrality uh, that they right. in fact uh, had sided with the United States. So that was a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was a, a big chip that Stalin was able to cash in on. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and um, <laughs> the story of uh, the um, Russia, uh, the Soviet ambassador in Tokyo playing the game with the <laughs> the Japanese government, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do that. And in the end, um, I believe uh, Molotov called in the uh, Japanese ambassador to Moscow and finally told him, uh, sorry, but we're going to uh, declare war tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, and that ended that as far as any Japanese hopes of, uh, as you point out, the mediating role that that uh, the Soviets might have been able to play. Uh, and I, I, I do give a lot of weight to the Soviet entry into the war uh, in um, compelling a Japanese surrender, although I, I ultimately give credit to um, uh, Emperor Hirohito for collectively uh, weighing everything that was happening and making what seemed to me to be his own decision on behalf of the nation that it is time to to uh, end the war. Um, but the poor Koreans were usually last on the on the list of, of, of considerations. <laughs> well, back in our time capsule. Uh, yes. Is it is it possible that the U.S. made a mistake in asking the Soviets uh, to advance into North Korea that they should that the U.S. should have perhaps done it themselves or ended the war with Japan and right. I, I, uh, for one, think that Japan would have seen the light of day. I can't imagine they wanted more atomic bombs. And right. I don't, it w- was the was the Soviet advance and and uh, ask and, and that agreement 
to enter the war? Was it really that necessary? Right. Uh, I I can look at it from several different points of view. Um, I I know Roosevelt definitely wanted the Soviets to uh, to enter the I'm war. Sorry, can you back he, up he when did. you when you say Roosevelt yes. this time? Can you refer this to FDR for, because we've had two Rosies in the conversation? That's right, Franklin Roosevelt, but he passed away in early April of '45. Uh, uh, Truman uh, was in a race to. Uh, to see when the atomic bomb would be deployable. And the first test was in late July of 1945, very promising. Uh, he was told it would be deployable uh, in another uh, 10 days. And in fact, it was then deployed on, on August uh, 6th, 1945. Um, but uh, Stalin was true to his word. He said three months after the end of the war in Europe, which was May 8th, uh, he would enter the war in the Pacific, and that was uh, August 8th of 1945. Uh, so what, what if Truman said, uh, sorry, Joseph, thank you very much, but we'll take it from here? I, I think it would have been more effective if Truman had been able to say that at Potsdam, at uh, the Potsdam Conference in Germany in, uh, in mid to late July, uh, rather than at the last minute. But maybe it was a political possibility. Uh, it... This is why I think it's looking at things as a either professional or part-time historian. Uh, it's it's easy to make certain assertions, but it's really hard to know uh, how confusing and hard to measure, hard to evaluate events were at that time of of late July through uh, mid uh, August of 1945. So many things happening on so many fronts, so many uh, criteria to evaluate. Uh, so uh, it, it's a possibility that that could have happened. Uh, uh, and, and perhaps one could say maybe the U.S. needed to have more spine at that time. Uh, I'm sorry, say, needed at, to have what? More spine, S-P-I-N-E. Uh, more backbone. Uh, and stand up to, uh, to Stalin because it was already quite clear what he was doing in Europe uh, in, in his leisurely stroll to to win victory in Germany while uh, making sure he had in place the, the mechanisms to uh, uh, ensure Soviet dominance in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the war in Pacific was, I think, was the mindset, it seems to me, was dominated by uh, an incredible sense that uh, it might take another year to bring about the defeat of Japan well into 1946 with a, a potential huge loss of American life. So it, it, it seems to me that it, it almost suggests that uh, in order to obviate a huge loss of American life, let the Soviets come in, do what they're going to do in Korea, do what they're going to do in China. Uh, and where Truman drew the line was to say, no, you can't have Soviet troops enter uh, the northernmost island of Hokkaido, uh, which Truman made very clear to, to Stalin um, uh, on August 16th, the very day after the Japanese surrender. Um, but I think there was an interest in shortening the period of time of, of, the, of the Japanese uh, 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 fighting, and I think it was a it was a consideration of minimizing the American loss of life uh, in trying to defeat the Japanese. In this time frame of your particular historical interest, 
what are some of the other major points that you think are worth looking back at that might have gone differently? Well, you know, my, my overall perspective is uh, that uh, I, I think a, a lesson, excuse me, a lesson for today is that Koreans, given their history, given the fact that um, going back to 1895, Koreans have really not either been a whole nation or a free nation or independent nation, uh, you know, right up to 2018. And so actually what motivates, what drives Koreans north or south, one could say, is a fear of being ignored. Because if you look at what happened uh, in uh, the first century of the 20th, excuse me, the first decade of the 20th century, uh, between 1900 and 1910, they were fully colonized uh, and lost their independence altogether. Uh, from 1945, uh, they've been a divided nation, and it became uh, uh, more permanent uh, uh, in 1948 when uh, two independent nations were declared on the Korean Peninsula uh, and, and further exacerbated uh, through the Korean War of, of 1950 to 53. Uh, so Koreans today, I think, uh, are so fearful of being ignored by the world that certainly in the case of North Korea, they become bombastic because their worst fear is to actually be ignored by the United States, to be ignored by uh, China, Russia, Japan, uh, because that's the historical predicament of Korea, almost forgotten in international events, to be in, seen as insignificant and not worthy of much attention. The, the chances of North Korean collapse, which might have been the wishful thinking uh, in the first two or three years after Kim Jong-un took power uh, from, his, from his deceased father, uh, he's now well secured his power uh, and the country is not going to uh, just disappear. I do think that um, the, Kim Jong-un is probably looking for a, a, a bargain where he is able to at least freeze his nuclear program and possibly over time slowly uh, see uh, the weapons uh, decommissioned in some way uh, and in some expectable way by uh, an outside agency. Uh, but he's looking for what, what is largely termed as security guarantees, which um, is, I think, more than just a promise uh, that the U.S. won't... Uh, uh, invoke any military action against the North, but it probably would have to be symbolized by a um, normalization of relations, uh, perhaps the opening of, uh, of embassies in the next uh, year or two uh, in, in respective cap uh, capitals, uh, and um, basically s securing his own well-being uh, and um, trying to keep his relations with China on an even keel, not uh, exacerbated, but not too close, <clears throat> and, and probably somewhat similar with, uh, with Putin's Russia, uh, and, um, and trying to make a, an arrangement with South Korea where um, there's uh, at least a modicum of cooperation, uh, but where, um, they, where North Korea is able to uh, keep some lid over um, the cooperation so as not to overly influence the population, which will be very uh, difficult to do. Um, but I, I, I think that's the general outline that I see. And um, uh, 
I do think that um, uh, one way or the other, a um, the the armistice that has been in effect since 1953 uh, has to be uh, resolved through some sort of uh, peace treaty or peace agreement, uh, so that the technical state of war on the peninsula uh, can finally come to an end. Would you agree that Kim in the north would need to be confident that he could hold on to power? at the same time of entering the international community. And how do you do that if you're a dictator and uh, <laughs> somehow satellite TV opens up? Kim, would he be able to keep his country sealed off, mm -hmm. uh, watertight from Western influence, media, mm -hmm. for example, and still right. enjoy the fruits of international integration? I think the way is to uh, learn from the Chinese model, but I think that the only way forward is to uh, adapt certain lessons, but not all lessons, from China's uh, economic reform while keeping the Communist Party uh, in power. So in the case of Kim Jong-un, uh, he would have to open up his society a lot more than it is, but he could still be much like President Xi is now in, in China, where he's the paramount leader, no longer term limited, so potentially he could be in power for, for several decades, who knows, and Kim Jong-un would uh, certainly be in power for the rest of his natural life, uh, at least in, that would be his intention. Uh, but North Korea would have to open up um, its economy. And um, but there would have to be certain kind of very strict controls on um, uh, on what people could do politically. So I would have to see a, a certain degree of um, of the China's reforms rubbing on rubbing off on North Korea, but in a way where North Korea did it in its own style, if you will. I, so and I to, think to in, put the question another way, can yes. Kim join the world? and avoid a North Korea spring? Well, I think he's going to need a little bit of a spring, maybe not a full-blown spring, but certainly not a spring where uh, he's uh, removed from power, uh, which could happen both internally or with, uh, uh, with some Chinese assistance <laughs> if China decided that was uh, the only recourse. Uh, but he's got to find the right balance. He's got to find the right balance uh, to keep the lid on his society, but not the, the kind of lid which is a pressure cooker right now. He's got to let off a lot of steam and he has to find um, a balance where um, relations are normalized with the international community. Sanctions are, are, are slowly reduced, uh, but it's a younger generation coming to power in North Korea uh, that he has installed himself, Kim Jong-un. Uh, they are too savvy about the world, so you have, to, you have no choice to let in a certain amount of information. But if one looks at China and sees the degree of control it has over the, over how politics are conducted and how even individual uh, communication over the internet can be censored in China, I think some of that is, is something that Kim Jong-un must seriously um, be considering as a possible uh, option. And under this scenario, is it not true that Kim would have to be confident that the U.S. would guarantee help guarantee in some way, either directly or indirectly, maybe as an Egyptian model, his survival, mm -hmm. despite the fact that he remains a de facto dictator or short of that, something along the Chinese model. 
Right. I, I would agree. But one thing I would add is that uh, whatever the U.S. does, uh, whatever China does, whatever Russia does, whatever Japan does, in the end, the two Koreas, whether South Korea is led by a liberal president or a more conservative president, they're going to ultimately look out for the interest of the Korean people and the Korean peninsula, uh, knowing that in a sense that their, their blood ties count for more than trusting their relationship with any other uh, foreign power. Uh, so it, w w some sort of a combination is going to be arrived at between South Korea and North Korea under whatever kind of government South Korea is led by uh, over the next uh, uh, five years or so. Uh, and Kim Jong-un knows that he is going to be the steady part of the equation. He's, he, he is planning on still being there, uh, whether uh, Moon Jae-in uh, is there or is succeeded by another liberal or another conservative, it won't matter. Uh, so I think in, in the end, that's what Kim is planning on. But South Korea is very useful in cajoling and arm twisting with a, a smile on its face, the U.S., to do things that are in the interests of the of its South Korean ally. I think Moon Jae-in has been very effective in doing that. And, I, and, in, and in a sense, I don't blame him because uh, South Korea is <laughs> it's a small country. It may be 50 million uh, people, but geographically, it's the size of Iowa or New York State. Uh, it's geographically very small. Uh, and they are, they're magnifying, uh, the South Koreans, their power because they are uh, quite an economic power, uh, quite an advanced high-tech power. Uh, and um, uh, they know that the, 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 their uh Brethren, if you will, uh, across the, the uh, DMZ uh, are really their own people. And um, ultimately, an accommodation is something that they have to um, arrange uh, with or without a great deal of support from the surrounding uh, major powers, including the United States. As you know, there has to be three guarantors of this arrangement, this scenario, U.S., China and Russia. Mm -hmm. Can the three work together, given everything else that's going on in that trio right now? Well, it depends what else is going on that that is a priority for, for those powers. I think Russia is uh, is pretty much in a situation where uh, the Russian Far East in general is not the highest priority. It's not being ignored, but it's so low in population that uh, the Chinese already are a, a major factor in the in the Russian Far East from an economic point of view. So uh, Russia will do what it can, but I think it's limited in uh, what influence can prevail uh, uh, it, it, where it borders with uh, the Korean Peninsula. China is the one truly to be reckoned with. And Japan... Uh, it doesn't have a physical border. It, it does have a, a, a maritime uh, boundary with the Korean Peninsula. But uh, its relations with uh, Korean people are still fraught with, um, with a lot of um, uh, latent anger, uh, latent resentment, uh, and perhaps even more so in the north than in the south, just from my own uh, couple of visits there. Uh, the Japanese are uh, by the uh, are really not forgiven by the North Koreans for what they did uh, from uh, 1910 to 1945. 
So really, China is is the is the most important power uh, surrounding the Korean Peninsula in terms of you know the real uh, effectiveness of what they can they can do. Um, uh, over the years, for example, uh, the, the North Korean military has been trained in China by uh, Chinese military, uh, and I imagine maybe that's been reduced somewhat, but it may still continue, which has given China a lot of leverage with the North Koreans. So they, they really are, in my mind at least, uh, the preeminent uh, power surrounding the Korean Peninsula. My thanks to Dr. Mark P. Berry.